From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Everyone is tired of the senseless violence, whether it's in Chicago or anything else, but gun bans are not the answer. I'm not going to move on from Highland Park, for that matter, Chicago or any other communities torn apart by these guns. What happened is tragic. I completely agree with you on that. But until this body is willing to change course and actually take up the root cause of gun violence, nothing will change. Within three days of the 4th of July shooting, there are more gun deaths throughout the state of Illinois than that day on the 4th of July in Highland Park. You are turning legal gun owners with this bill into felons. I rise in the gap for all of the mothers and the fathers throughout this state who have lost their child, who have lost their son, who have lost their daughter to gun violence. Well, some of the voices from the House this week, just before representatives approved a package to ban assault weapons in the state, last person we heard from, Democrat Jahan Gordon Booth of Peoria. She lost her son to gun violence. The action was a major victory for gun control advocates, but it's not done yet. We'll discuss where things stand and what could be next also for the Safety Act. That and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and along with us we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime State House reporter and observer. Joining us today as well, we have Jeremy Gorner with the Chicago Tribune. Jeremy covers the State House. And uh, Jeremy, you've been following a lot of this action this week, so we'll go right to it. You had a long night Thursday night as the House approved that assault weapons ban. Now it has to only go through one more chamber before going to the governor. That would be the Illinois Senate. Could we see some possible you know, speed bumps as uh, this advances? Yeah, never say never uh, about today. Obviously, it's very unpredictable when anything's going to happen you know, around here. But um, the goal, it, it certainly sounds like the goal is for this bill to be uh, considered by the Senate before Tuesday, um, which would be the scheduled end of this General Assembly. So so that's basically where it stands right now. Uh, it still has to go through the Senate. It passed uh, 64 to 43 last night. And uh, because it passed during lame duck session, it didn't need the uh, three-fifths majority as, as it would have during um, veto session. House GOP leader Jim Durkin, he was the only Republican who joined um, Democrats in uh, voting for this. And yeah, and, and basically, um, there was an amendment to this bill uh, Pat, um, that was um, filed yesterday by uh, Speaker Welch. Uh, you know, one of the points of contention with this bill is that it would have raised the um, the age um, that someone in Illinois could get a FOID card from 18 to 21. Uh, this amendment does away with that provision, but it increases the definition of what a high capacity magazine is part of this assault weapons ban proposal is that it, it um, would also ban high capacity magazines previously that ban was um anything with more than 10 rounds in a magazine and they increased that to to anything more than 12 um that obviously is does is not good enough for 
um, gun rights advocates, um, in part because, you know, a standard issue semi-automatic handgun, for example, um, has, you know, many of them have 15 to 16 rounds. Um, you know, so, you know, what, what could that mean for, you know, you know, some of these guns that are being manufactured because 15 or 16 is fairly standard. Um, aside from that, I mean, Republicans basically used their usual talking points when it came to this kind of legislation, basically that it's, they think it's unconstitutional and they think that it'll criminalize law-abiding citizens. Um, one of the things that Speaker Welch wanted to stress in that regard is that, you know, Democrats, you know, are not trying to take anyone's guns away. Basically, there's um, if you know a gun owner um, is in possession of firearms that are designated as assault weapons under this proposal, they'll have um, 300 days, I believe it is, about a year to register those firearms with the Illinois State Police. So they don't have to get rid of them if they already have them. They just have to register them. Um, but in effect, this ban would. Um, and the sale of um, such weapons. Charlie, you uh, what Jeremy just touched on there, too, regarding the vote, the fact that it's being done here in what's known as the lame duck session, there's a procedural reason that they're moving it at this time, and that is because it requires less votes to pass. Your thoughts on that? I mean, that, that was the reason why it wasn't done at another time, I'm guessing. Yeah, under the Constitution, anything that the legislature passes in either chamber from January 1st to May 31st requires simple majority, 60 in the House, 30 in the Senate. Anything from June 1st to December 1st requires extraordinary, or December 31st requires extraordinary, 71 in the House, 36 in the Senate, for it to become effective immediately, as opposed to you can pass a bill in veto session with simple majorities, but it will not take effect until the following uh, June. And so the Democrats, had they had the same roll call uh, last week, the bill would have failed. But by doing it after the turn of the new year, they could do it with these simple majorities. And as Jeremy said, there was only one Republican who voted for it. There were four Democrats who voted against it, two from the southwest suburbs and two from downstate districts. So it's it's a an issue that's always kind of not followed party lines. It's been more of a regional type of a vote. Now, the Senate has basically, they're coming back Sunday afternoon, and this particular piece of legislation, the Senate has two choices. They can either accept the House amendment or they can reject the House amendment. And my guess is they will probably either accept it or ask for a conference committee. And I'm assuming that over the weekend, there will be discussions going on between senators and House members, people who have been focused in on this issue to try and see if they can't reach some compromise, in which case uh, the, the Senate can say, we're not gonna take your amendment, let's go to conference. The conference can come out and say, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Both chambers approve it, bam, it goes to the governor. The thing that I do not think will happen is that this bill will not get out of this current session of the General Assembly. They'll get it done one way or the other before noon on Wednesday. 
Well, Governor Pritzker has been heavily involved in some of these negotiations to his administration. And Jeremy, uh, it's, it's safe to say he's going to be involved in whatever the Senate does. I would think he's going to be working with them as well. Right. First off, I just want to clarify something to Charlie's point. The, the assault weapons ban vote was not along party lines. I was talking about the abortion measure. Sorry about that. Um, that was along party lines. Um, and, and, and secondly, to your question, um, uh, Sean, yeah, I mean, I think ideally, um, you know, inauguration is Monday and you would think that he would want that, that the governor would want um, passage of this bill through the Senate before then. So he has something to hang his hat on come inauguration day, but whether that's actually in the cards before that, I mean, it, that remains to, to be seen. Um, well, well, Jeremy, if, if I'm not mistaken, the the governor was sitting right alongside Speaker Welch as Welch presented the bill last night, right? Yes, 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 he was. And that's not something you see all that often. No, right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that in itself is a rarity, right? Well, Jim Durkin, you mentioned the outgoing House Republican leader, the only Republican to vote for this legislation. And and uh, we heard a little bit of him at the start of the show where he made the comment that he just could not move past Highland Park, that he and, and he has supported uh, some gun control legislation in the past. Did you have a chance to talk with him or hear more from him about why about his decision, why he voted the way he did on this? I have not. I mean, he's he's somebody who, um, you know, one would think that, you know, if there are any Republicans in that caucus who would, you know, who would vote, the, you know, who would vote for something like this, you know, I would think somebody like Jim Durkin or even um, Keith Wheeler, for example, um, you know, who, you, you think about people who voted for, you, you know, the, the fix the Floyd uh, legislation. But um, yeah, not I. I did not personally. I did not talk to Jim uh, right after um, the vote. But it's my understanding that he had kind of signaled early on that this could be, um, you know, a bill that he had, you know, that that he would support. He's he, you know, he hasn't been. He hasn't struck me as being, um, you know, obviously, I'm, I, you know, as pro Second Amendment. <laughs> as other you know members of his caucus basically um you know he he seemed to be pretty agreeable you know agreeable to um legislation just like you know like fix the foid i think he was one of eight or nine house members who voted for for that um but as far as him being the lone republican to vote for this i couldn't say specifically exactly why just that you know given his voting record in the past it doesn't strike me as being too surprising. At least from the stories I saw, the quotes, he spoke pretty passionately about Highland Park, about how uh, the people who died, the, the little little boy who's crippled now because of it, and he said along the lines that, you know, enough is enough, and we've got to do something about it. And I thought his remarks were probably easier for him to make since he's no longer going to be the Republican leader. He could maybe be speaking more candidly and more freely and more voicing his true thoughts than trying to herd the group of right-wing, what would you say, true believers that are going to form the, the bulk of the Republican caucus in our next session. 
Right. It, well, the other, I was going to say to, to add to your point, Charlie, I don't know if you heard it on, if you heard this, in the, either of you, if you heard this in the, in the house debate last night, but uh, Andrew Chesney, one of the um, Republicans in this caucus, uh, in in so many words, <laughs> basically was bashing Durkin for his um, impassioned uh, support uh, for uh, for the bill before the vote. Um, and you know, if you listen to it, Chesney was basically congratulating Speaker Welch on, yeah, you got somebody, you got the leader of our caucus basically behind you on this bill. And then he was talking about. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, it's no wonder that the the House Republicans are in such disarray with leadership like that, basically. So there clearly was some uh, animosity for, um, you know, amongst at least Chesney, you know, um, for the position that Durkin uh, took on this bill last night. Yeah. Well, let's move on because we are probably going to talk more about this issue as the next few weeks go on, especially if there is more action on this, as we expect there could be as early as this weekend. But there was some other action in the House yesterday as well, Jeremy, and uh, you you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there was some abortion legislation. Uh, Just fill us in on what this would do. Right. So so basically... um... This abortion, this abortion um, legislation was the product of um, the work, one of the working groups led by um, Representative Kelly Cassidy um, in light of the uh, overturn, the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade uh, last June. Obviously, um, obviously, you know, the measures were the measure was broadly aimed at expanding the availability of abortion services and protecting um, service providers and patients from, from legal liability under restrictive laws um, in other states, um, particularly some neighboring states um, that have signaled that they're you know going to ban abortion in light of the Supreme Court ruling. Um, so that's basically um, you know that's basically what you know some this legislation does. Um, the proposal would allow advanced practice registered nurses and physician assistants to um, perform abortions that don't require general anesthesia and it would seek to prevent healthcare providers from losing their licenses in Illinois um, solely because they had them revoked in another state for performing an abortion, um, you know, where in states where abortions are, are outlawed. So it, it basically um, provides protection actions for um, abortion providers and shields them from uh, uh, legal liabilities. Yeah, Charlie, you weren't probably too surprised to see this come up. I mean, uh, abortion is legal in Illinois. And in fact, uh, the governor and others have said they want it to be an oasis in the Midwest. So not shocking to see this type of legislation to protect physicians and others who want to uh, who want to perform these procedures. No, I think this was pretty well expected after after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, because states were starting to talk about uh, going after their residents who might seek abortion services outside the the state boundaries of a state that that bans the procedure. And there's legislation in a number of states trying to penalize providers who offer abortions to residents of those states. And so this was a safeguard that I think we all knew was going to be coming. And this is another bill. It's in the same situation. 
this legislation was amended to a Senate bill that cleared the Senate some time ago, and now it's back before the Senate as an amendment to the bill, and the Senate has to decide whether to concur, to accept that amendment or not. My guess is the Senate will, and that'll probably happen uh, maybe Sunday, maybe Monday, certainly before noon on Tuesday. All right. Well, also, since we last sat down to record this program, uh, which was basically before Christmas when we last got together, there have been more developments regarding the Safety Act. A Kankakee County judge ruled it unconstitutional, and that was the portion of it that had to do with cash bail. Uh, That decision meant the idea of no cash bail would not go into effect the first of the year in the counties that had filed lawsuits against it. Well, the Illinois Supreme Court then announced that that portion of the law will be on hold until the high court rules, which is not likely to happen until sometime later this year. Charlie, do you think that was the prudent way to go for the Supreme Court to step in there? Yeah, I I think it was because the difficulty was the the ruling by the Kankakee Circuit Court judge invalidated the provision of the Safety Act dealing with the Pre-Trial Fairness Act, but it only applied to the counties that were, whose state's attorneys and sheriffs were parties to the suit. So that meant that the no cash bail would go into effect in, in maybe 40 some counties, whereas the old system would remain in place in 60. And in the Chicago area, I know in Cook County, they were all set to go with no cash bail. And on the other hand, there were some suburban cities that extend across county lines where if you were, as an example, if you were arrested on the east side of town, well, uh, there's no cash bail. You don't have to worry about that. If you're arrested on the west side of town, you have to come up with big bucks to get out of jail while you're awaiting trial. And so the Supreme Court stepped in and in essence said, look, this is crazy. We can't have two different systems operating at the same time in conflict with each other. So we're just going to put a hold on the Pretrial Fitness Act or Fairness Act while we consider the arguments that were made in Kankakee and decide whether or not the Kankakee judge made the right decision. Yeah, Jeremy, I've heard people on both sides of this argument pretty confident in where things stand. They, you know, the people who support it, including Governor Pritzker, have said that you know, they're confident this is going to be uh, upheld. Uh, others say no, that, you know, we told you this was unconstitutional and it's going to be proven so, but we're not going to know for a few more months. There's no legislation or talk of other changes coming, I'm guessing. This is going to play out in the courts, right? Exactly. Um and and I think it's really anyone's guess how this is going to play out. I mean, you know, you would think that just because there's a five to two majority that it would be a shoe in <laughs> that it's that, that the high court would automatically overturn um, the Kankakee ruling. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say that, um, you know, I think it is interesting, though, that while the Supreme Court is considering um, is going to consider um, uh, Kwame Rowell's appeal. Um, in this case, the you know at the same time the, they've played a big role in helping implement the pretrial provisions that were supposed to go into effect January first. They had this task force that was providing guidance to um, judges and states attorneys um, in you know in all the counties throughout Illinois leading up to this appeal. So I mean 
I don't know if behind, you, you know, I know that that's not how the Supreme Court works, where somebody can't step in and say, hey, we have questions about the constitutionality of this or perhaps lack thereof. I mean, they need a case that's brought before them. But I just I'd be interested to know like what some of those behind the scenes discussions were like while they were actually trying to implement the no cash bail provision and other pretrial provisions leading up to this um, lawsuit from Kankakee County. But yeah, I mean, you know, however it plays out, I mean, the courts are going to have the, the court is going to have the final say um, when it comes to this. And, and, and also, you know, kind of like we were, you and Charlie were talking about, um, you know, after the judge, the Kankakee County judge made that made it, it made his decision. um, You know, there wasn't an injunction. So you have, 64 counties who were party to this lawsuit who um you know really didn't have any plans on um implementing the pretrial provisions on new year's day they were going to remain on the traditional cash bail um system the problem with that is that where you have the remaining counties such as cook county such as dupage county and um uh, a couple of the other collar counties um who were not part of this lawsuit you know for all intents and purposes, we're going to basically had plans to um, begin the new year on this new pretrial detention system, doing away with cash bail. So that prompted um, two state's attorneys, the state's attorneys from DuPage and Kane counties, to send um, to, to send a motion to the Supreme Court and said, "Look, there's an equal protection issue. We're going to have criminal defendants all over the county, all over the state." that are some are going to go under um, the bail provisions some are going to go under the elimination of bail provisions and that's an equal protection issue um for example in dupage county i believe the city of aurora falls under like three three or a couple of different counties um uh at least one of which was party to the kankakee lawsuit and uh, others that were not so depending on what side of aurora you're arrested in you're gonna have different rights than other criminal defendants. So they filed this motion um, with the state Supreme Court to to make, to say, hey, whatever you decide while you are considering this case, you know, the law has to be consistent for everybody. So this is, this obviously factored in to the Supreme Court's decision to completely halt the pretrial provisions while they consider the case. So for now, the state of Illinois is still under its traditional cash bail system while this is all sorted out. And the Supreme Court just put out briefings um, yesterday, um, set a briefing schedule for, um, you know, for the, for Kwame Raul and for the uh, state's attorneys who were, um, you know, in the, who, who the plaintiffs in the Kankakee lawsuit. Um, and it looks like in March, that's when the Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments uh, in the appeal. Well, we will keep an eye on that. Still a ways to go there. Uh, did want to save a couple of minutes here, too, at the end to talk about a big uh, a big move coming in state government. Jesse White, he has been the Secretary of State for 24 years now, but he is leaving, chose not to run for another term. Alexei Janulius will be sworn in next week. White's probably been the most popular office holder, certainly during his time in office. Charlie, you've known him a long time. I just wanted to get your thoughts on Jesse White. Yeah, I would say that Jesse White is probably, if not the most, among the most honorable people who ever held office in the state of Illinois. He is a true gentleman. I first 
met Jesse after he was elected in the 19, I want to say 1974 election, uh, representing a an interesting district that included, it, it was basically the, the 42nd Ward in Chicago. And the Ward Committeeman, George Dunn, who at the time was County Board President, recruited Jesse to run. And Jesse, of course, is a Black man. And the ward was overwhelmingly white. It had the Cabrini Green Housing Project, but it also had the Gold Coast and some of downtown and, and uh, some of Lincoln Park. So it was a, a contrast in that particular area. But Jesse came in and he did a good job. He was kind and thoughtful and considerate. And when, when I started at, at the University of Illinois with the public affairs reporting program, I tried to arrange interviews, news conferences for my students with the state office holders. And I remember one with Jesse in particular. This is after Rod Blagojevich got elected. And so we're in there meeting with Jesse White. And this would have been the fall of what? Uh, 2003, I guess. And one of the students asked him, what do you think of the new governor? And Jesse White said, he's a liar. And I about fainted on the spot. That is the most critical or the harshest I've ever heard Jesse White speak about anyone. And what happened was there was a dispute over the funding level for the Secretary of State's office. And White thought he and Rod Bogoyevich had reached an agreement for what it was going to be. And then Bogoyevich turned around and publicly stabbed Jesse in the back and cut his office. And so Jesse was really unhappy about that. As I say, that's, that's the harshest I've ever heard him speak about anyone. He did a lot of good things as Secretary of State. One of the things I, I would think of which he is most proud is the state's organ and tissue donor registry. And there was an announcement uh, just a few days ago that more than 7.5 billion people have registered to donate their organs and tissues uh, when they die. And there's something like 10 million people of our population who would qualify to be donors, roughly three quarters of them are now signed up to do it. And so, yeah, Jesse is, he's, he's a treasure. It's time now for our notes from the field and uh, Jeremy, let's start with you. Well, this morning, um, the Senate uh, passed a bill that would allow uh, principals in the Chicago public schools to unionize um, the bill uh, now goes uh, to the governor. It had been, um, you know, it was first introduced in January, January this year. And um, it's kind of been in the news a little bit, but uh, yeah, it passed uh, with a 45 to seven vote. And basically it awaits uh, the governor's signature. And Charlie. Professor Jay Fred Geertz at the Institute for Government and Public Affairs at the U of I, uh, came out with the flash index the other day to show that the state is continuing its very slow decline, dropping to 103.3 compared to 103.7 in November. But Illinois is still growing. He said, and he said that tax revenues continue to hold up well. And the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability reported that for the first half of the fiscal year, we're in FY 
23, it ended on December 31st, uh, the Illinois General Fund's base receipts are up $1.7 billion. And if you add in the federal ARPA reimbursement, it goes up to $2 billion. So we appear to be in pretty good shape. That's all of our time for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and the Chicago Tribune's Jeremy Gorner. You can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. And join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.